0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bob Sets podcast. My guest this week is DJ Cascade. Great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is awesome. Now, of course, it's all over the internet. Your name is Ryan Radden. Is it okay to call you Ryan? Call me whatever you, whatever your preference is. Okay, so Ryan, some of the audience will, people will be very familiar with your music and with the scene. Do you like the moniker EDM or not?
1: Uh, I think today, I don't. It used to not bother me at all. and it, I mean, really and truly, it doesn't bother me that much. Um, but I think EDM has kind of become a bad word in the last like couple of years. I think now it almost represents a genre of electronic music that I'm not necessarily that closely affiliated with. It's more this big room kind of mayhem uh very loud, obnoxious music within electronic music—it's kind of become its own little like subgenre. But for me, I'm just glad anyone's calling this music anything. Look, I okay. come from a day when it was—you know—we were
0: unnoticed. So. Okay, but let's stay there. For the uninitiated, they read all the different genres of dance music: yeah. house music, chill, etc. Can you go through and explain those to the audience who may be unfamiliar with them? Uh
1: I'll do as good a job as I can in a in a short little concise way. Um, House music is just I think for me, that's kind of just the very general, broad term that's just post-disco. Just think of disco music, okay. right? It's kind of what made it through the 70s. It's kind of the the 80s version of disco music, and that's kind of survived this entire time. That's kind of the backbone. Disco is the backbone of electronic music is the way I see it. Okay. <laughs> kid from Chicago. That's my perspective, very much so. Um, but then chills, just like what you would think it is. It's relaxed, down-tempo, um, Trap is kind of a, a version of hip-hop music that's, uh, you know, modern version of hip-hop music. That's the way I see it. It's very aggressive. Um, and, I mean, within each one of these m- – big genres, there's 50 (laughs) sub-genres, you know, I mean, with trap, there's bro step and hard step, and and then you have drum and bass, which a lot of this stuff is differentiated by uh, tempo. Drum and bass is, you know, 140, 150, 160. Beats per minute. Beats per minute, yep. And then house is, you know, around 120, 125, kind of like a disco groove. Um, You know, trance is very fast, like 135, 140, uh, very synthetic sounding, um, very synth driven. Um, yeah, I, mean, I don't know. There's so many genres out there. It's hard to even, I think trance house electro is, uh, similar to house, but, um, but much more aggressive sounding. And that was made popular with kind of EDM and Steve Aoki and that wave of artists, bloody beat Roots and that kind of a thing that was happening' I don't know a few years ago, so what would you consider your music to be? Um, I mean, I like to say house because I think that's a very broad general term, but within that, yes, I make chill music, I make ambient music that doesn't have it's a tempo, there's no real tempo. It's just kind of chill stuff. Uh, you know that's, that's me I mainly make and then I, and then I have those kind of bigger, more I, I call them big room. Sounds, you know, that's another kind of subgenre of house music that's more popular on the main stage, and that's basically what I played at, at the Sun Soaked Festival. I had those more chill moments, but, I you know, I kind of go take it up and down. Um, yeah.
0: Okay, so you're from Chicago. Yes. And uh, you're born in Chicago, 1970, 1971. 71. 71. 71. Yeah. And what does your father do for a living? Uh, finance. This is why we're in Chicago. This is
1: kind of a hub of a financial center. Um, helps out savings and loans, has his own business, goes out there and is helping small banks and savings and loans, kind of um, he developed programs to kind of help them through the way. So nothing music related at all. <laughs>
0: okay, did your mother work outside the house?
1: Uh she did. She helped my dad a lot. And then she was always doing stuff. She was what was she doing? Her best job was working at the uh the, the ski shop there that was pretty close to my house. Well, we, we
0: got to stop here for a second. Yes. So you're a snowboarder? Yes, I am. How often do you get to snowboard?
1: Uh, I usually go up about one week a year. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm. of all those kinds of sports, I, I love to surf and run and do okay. all this stuff. But snowboarding, I'm the
0: best at, Out of all those. Things. Okay, did you snowboard when you lived in Chicago? I did. Okay, um, what are the, you know, I forget the little, what, Wilmot? Wilmot. Yep, there <laughs> exactly. it is. You know, that's, you know, oh, an hour north. Here.
1: You just get in there, Wilmot, right. Wilmot is a terrible hill, <laughs> Right. I had a lot of fun. My mom on Saturday morning would drop me off at the YMCA, and for like, I don't know what it was, 20 or 30 bucks, right. they would bust the kids up there, you know. We'd ski for the day and then come back, you know, come back down
0: Were you ever a skier first or were you always yes. a snowboarder?
1: No, I grew up skiing. I mean, I'm old enough that, you know, when I first started out, snowboarding didn't even really exist. I was there right. for that first wave when Burton snowboards were putting out these wood snowboards that you would strap in. You know, you'd be you wearing Sorel boots. that didn't right, even right, snowboard Right, 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 right. You know, I'm going to the sled hill and strapping in and going down and testing this out. Because I was skateboarding from a really young age. So when snowboarding came along to me, for me, I was like, oh, man, that's what I want do. And then you said your mother worked in the ski shop. She did.
0: Yeah. Okay. So She's getting discounts. She, that's exactly why she worked in the ski <laughs> shop.
1: Trying to outfit, I two older brothers, two younger sisters, trying to outfit five kids Kids in ski gear is, uh, you know, expensive. So I think she worked there so she can make that happen. Okay. So you're in the middle.
0: I'm the middle child. Yes. So, you know, I'm a middle child, too. Theori- All right. Theoretically overlooked. You know, the hopes and dreams are in the older ones. The younger ones are babied. Yeah. And you're kind of ignored and go your own way. I'm pretty convinced my parents didn't
1: know my name until, like, I graduated high school. <laughs> <laughs> well, how much older are your older brothers and younger sisters? Um- so, and that's another interesting thing. They waited a while for my sister. So I was never in high school with them. I wasn't in school with them. Really? I was like on my own completely. <laughs> um, my older brother's also, the brother that's right above me is four and a half years older than me. Okay. So he, by the time he left high school, I was going in. Right. You know, when I was a freshman, he was already a freshman in college. So, uh, yeah, I was kind of on my own. There. And
0: then how much older is your oldest, brother?
1: Um. He's only a year older than the one above me, so okay. he's, and he's how, you know, four and a half, five and a half and years. And what's
0: the age of your uh, sisters?
1: Um, let's see. There, the, My sister is five years younger than me, and then uh, the youngest is seven years younger than me. So on younger. some
0: level, when, you, you know, the older ones were so old, you know, you, you never really coexisted. You know, everybody was, like, so much older or younger. Yeah, in the house we did. We definitely
1: coexisted, (laughs) but outside of it, no, we were all kind of doing our own things. And you know, in the eighties, it was a different time. We're running around riding our bikes. Everybody's kind of just like having
0: fun. There was no okay. Now uh, you're from Northbrook, Illinois. Yes. The only thing I know about Northbrook, Illinois, supposedly the speed skating capital of the world. That's wow. You have done your research. Yes. That's i watch watched right. a lot of TV. I don't know.
1: I didn't do. Re- <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, that's right. They practice over there uh, right at the sled hill. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, there's a, Pool over there that I was a lifeguard at for many years, Um, but they—that's where they practice right over by the sled hill. So, but in
0: the community, is it like—is it something where they're trying to drag people into the sport, or it just happens to be there?
1: Just happens to be there, and I think you know they had some success early on, and then those guys kept going back to Northbrook, and it cultivated you know this small group of people, and it's—it's still around. I mean. (laughs) I talked to one of my friends the other day, and I, I forget the gold medalist that that still lives there and, and you know trains people there. I mean, they it, you know they've got a small facility, and I, I don't know. It just became one of these things that happened in Northbrook, Illinois. You know? Okay, so you're in North. What do your sisters and brothers do for a living now, or what are their lives about? Uh, my oldest brother Russ is. Um, Um, he sells satellite dishes to trucking companies so truckers can have TV on the road. Really? That's pretty good. That's an interesting thing. That's his own business that he started with a buddy of his. Um, Rich is uh, here in, um, he was into movie producing. He lives in the Palisades as well. Um, But he stopped that and went into uh, the internet side of things. He does Zephyr, which their office is actually very close to where we're sitting here. Zephyr is a kind of a Uh, YouTube analytics company, and they, um, you know, work with YouTube channels. Okay,
0: and your two sisters? (laughs)
1: Two sisters. Um, Let's see, my youngest takes care of her her two kids. And she Uh, lives where? uh, She's in the Bay Area, San Francisco. Um, And then my other sister lives close to my mom in Salt Lake. My mom, after... She, my dad, mom and dad retired they made their way out west they were in las vegas for a few years and then they made their way to salt lake because a few of my brothers and sisters are there
0: and now everybody's still alive your
1: father your parents. Uh, my, my dad's passed away uh, but uh, my mom's still here all the
0: kids are still here okay so what does everybody think of your success uh, disbelief <laughs> disbelief because of the genre or they never believed
1: in you no, they always believed in me. they okay. always like, oh, Ryan will be fine, whatever this guy right. wants to do. My mom's like, my, my youngest sister told that story recently. Mom said you were the golden child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> I don't remember hearing that, but that's awesome. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I was a hard worker coming up, so I think they thought I would have success no matter what. I,
0: You know, all my brothers and sisters are successful. You know, I mean. Yeah, but— We all know if you're successful in dance music, it's incredibly lucrative. You know, it's not like you go on the – it's like being a comedian. You take your microphone and maybe a road manager. Yes. And there's a little bit more. Maybe take your laptop or a USB stick or your turntables. But there are these high fees which are paraded everywhere in the news now. Yes. And you have to pay an agent. Maybe you have to pay a manager. But it's very lucrative. Yeah, and they like to rib me about that. I mean, you know,
1: t- typically my family gets together once a year, at least once a year, and it's usually around July 4th. My mom's got a cabin in Idaho uh, over by Jackson Hole, Wyoming, beautiful part of the country. Wow, yeah, it is. Anyway, but typically because of my schedule, me and my family, we fly private in, <laughs> and this, this causes a lot of, you know, hey, what's going on here, guys? Ooh, fancy plane coming <laughs> So okay, my, my siblings love to, you know. Right, where's the, the airport there? I uh, usually fly Idaho Falls. It's okay. close.
0: But sometimes I've flown into Jackson. just depends, you know. Okay, then another question. You've made all this money. Your relatives asked for money? Not
1: too much, no. Um, I, I don't know. Are they scared? This is, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, they might be listening. No, I, Not, don't say anything you don't want to say. No, I listen, uh, on my side of family, I mean, people have done okay. I don't think anyone is, you know, and— Whatever, I've been there a few times to help out when help's
0: needed, but, uh... Okay, and then, you know, a lot of times rock stars or famous musicians like buy their parents a house or a car or something. Did you go through any of that? Uh, I haven't. I haven't haven't. needed to. My dad was, uh,
1: he did well. And, uh, he set it up so that my mom, you know, is fine and everyone... Okay, well, let's stay with the money because we're on this topic. What do you do with the money? Um... (laughs) I have a couple of houses. Uh, that's yeah, expensive. but there's a lot more
0: money than a couple of houses. Yes, there is. Uh, let's I mean, do see. you no have notes. it in
1: stocks? Do you have it in companies? What, what do you do with it? I've invested a lot of it. Um, I've been very conservative. This is the, this is where I wish my dad was alive. You know, he, he, he would help passed you out. the way things really started to, come, to go crazy. Um, and, uh, yeah, you'd have been able to help me out, but
0: um you know i've done well i've I've been very conservative, uh, okay, conservative means what like index funds or you're buying blue chips, or- yes. Okay. All of that, and are you aware of where all your money is? Yes, I am. Okay, because you know the legendary stories of people not so much recently being ripped off by their financial advisors. My, my wife forwards me every single one of
1: those articles because <laughs> she was my business manager for ten years. Uh, okay. She's been very involved in my business, and she was my business manager for ten years, and that was a hard one to pass over. And you know, she's always so scared of like, where is everything? So, yeah, we keep a close eye on it. And uh, um, I'm fairly involved with where everything is, and I get updated. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. The biggest thing, you know, I bought a really nice car recently. But Well, now I, since we're into it, what car did you buy? Uh, my w- I should say my wife bought a really nice car. My, Naomi, my wife, loves to drive. She loves to drive, and now she's getting her pilot's license, which really? we'll probably get it. Well, she's getting a helicopter pilot's license, and so we'll probably be buying a helicopter here fairly soon.
0: Yeah. Okay, one, st- one subject, one time. What car did you get? Uh, a Porsche Targa. Okay. Yeah. But the only thing about helicopters is – when there's a problem, they go right down. Oh, yeah. Yes, they do. I mean, you
1: know, I remember... I've told her about this. I, I, I remember oh, flying in the, some videos on YouTube. You
0: know, I remember flying in the helicopter to EDC, okay? And the way over there, you know, it's a, it's a helicopter full of people where they're all talking and whatever. On the way back, you know, the 4.30 in the morning, and it's just me who's awake, and the thing is bouncing up and down, it's not like being in a commercial airplane where you say, well, this thing will never crash. So, well, it could crash. I think it's still a fairly... Safe way to travel. Okay. Just since we're on the plane thing, let's go uh, with the point. So when you fly private, do you have a NetJet account or an equivalent or do you just book every time you go? Typically I book every time I go. That's
1: what I'm doing ninety-nine percent of the time. Uh, I joined one of these things and I haven't even been able to use it. So why haven't you been able to uh, use it? Just it doesn't work for me. It's one of these like kind of, you know, jets on demand kind right. of thing. And you get on there and you pay a fee. And right. like, every time I go on there to use it, it's like never working for me. But I don't want to put this image out that I'm flying around pl- private all the time.
0: Well, I'm- no, no, well, the point being that people don't understand that it's not about luxury, it's about convenience. Yes. It's like Okay, uh, you know, this is why, you know, I I don't want to sound go between the haves and have nots, but if you talk about corporations, et cetera, they feel the value of time of the CEO. they don't want them sitting on the ground waiting to get on the plane. For those of us who have flown private, the greatest things you show up and you leave. Yep. So you're not burning it's two amazing. hours, you it's know, right there. So amazing. Yeah. And I'm sure you've had this because all successful uh, DJs have. Well, you are playing multiple gigs in a day or night. Yes. And the only way to do it is to fly private, and it economically makes sense. So, uh, you know, I completely understand that, even though people might want to judge you on that. But, Going back to Chicago, so you grew up in Chicago, when are you interested in music? Right away. Right away. And your parents playing
1: music in the house? Uh, yes, they do. Mommy and everything from Mormon Tabernacle Choir to the Bee Gees to, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and everything above. It's like, we're getting everything in the house, um... And my mom's got a piano in the front room, and everyone's required to take lessons. So. Oh, so you
0: did take piano lessons. Oh, yeah. I did, too. For how many years?
1: Oh, I quit very quickly, I, which is the funniest thing. I mean, my youngest sister's actually a, a really great player. I mean, she lasted the longest. I don't know, the baby of the family. Right. I don't know. Maybe she, she was very uh, diligent, I should say, Um but I was the guy who quit the – quit. I mean I lasted like a few months and I just threw a tantrum at my mom. I think by the third kid, she's like, good, fine, whatever.
0: You know, <laughs> she's worn out. So Now, did you have a record player or stereo system in your room? Uh, I did. Okay. Yeah, and then in
1: high school, I got a, a bigger system in my room and uh, – Okay, so when you're in high school, you say you're entrepreneurial. Yeah. Did you have jobs? I did. What'd you do? I did everything. I bagged groceries at Julasco. I valet parked cars.
0: I mean- And you did that because you wanted the money or your parents said you have to work?
1: Both. We worked in the summer in my house. We always did that. You know, my dad made me mow the lawn. I mowed lawns. Uh, I was a lifeguard for many years. Um, But I enjoyed having money. I enjoyed having my own money. I mean, with five kids, there wasn't a lot of extra and- and if there was, it wasn't trickling down to me. Right.
0: Okay. So you bought the stereo with
1: your own money? Yep. And do you remember what it was? I don't. But the big amp that I had was my buddy, Chad Calabix. It was his amp that he would, the very first keyboard, a profit. No, 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 up. no, no. Okay. No.
0: First, I'm talking about no. listening systems. Yep. Did you have, with your money that you made, did you buy a stereo so you could play your own music in your own, not make music, but listen to music? Yes. Okay, you remember what that was? No, I Okay. Nothing flashy. Okay, but you were then buying cassettes, CDs, vinyl, what? Uh, vinyl,
1: there was a Dog Ear Records very close to my house, which was a thing in the Midwest, I believe, and they had an arcade and a vinyl section, and I, I liked vinyl, and vinyl was cheaper. I just liked the format. Right, and I so what, what kind of art. music were you buying? A lot of classic rock, because I had two older brothers, you know, Led Zeppelin, The Who, The um, Who. You know, the police. I'm buying all this classic rock stuff. This is all coming through. And then when my brothers went to college, when the first one, he came back and it was like the cure, the smiths. And this is when I'm in middle school and I started getting into this new wave stuff. Um, And I just, man, that stuff. Then it was, you know, craft work and more into the electro and techno pop and like the early electro stuff. I mean, it was a bit of everything, really.
0: Okay. Yeah. Now, famously, Chicago is the home of house music. Yes. That's where it started. Were you aware of that? To a degree.
1: And I think this plays a big part in my story.
0: Well, then lay it on us. Yeah.
1: I, I think, look, I, I'm growing up in Chicago. My, that summer before I was a freshman, so I've graduated eighth grade. I'm out of middle school. Um, My brother that's right above me, Rich, is going into nightclubs in the city. He's going to college. And they had a lot of like all-age clubs were a thing back there, teen clubs, juice bars, you know, whatever, juice bars. Kids are going, they're doing drugs, they're doing whatever, but they're staying out. You could go to these things. There wasn't like really an age requirement. I mean, I just think it was a much more carefree time. I don't even think that stuff exists now. Um, But anyway, that summer, I went to my first nightclub. And it was a lot of wax tracks, which was like an early industrial ministry and, uh, you know, early Depeche Mode and kind of like heavy sounding stuff, but mixed with early house records because they're similar tempo, right? So these things that kind of – uncraft work and all this is kind of happening. And that first experience, I was like, this is it. I mean, I was in. I went to Medusa's was the name of the club. Um, whatever, I liked getting on the train, you know, going into the city with my brother, we're going out, we're staying out till midnight, you know, this was a big deal. And I just, everything about it, the culture, the people, everything around this scene amazed me. And I just was like, I want to be a part of this. Of course, I was up at the booth watching what the DJ was doing. And the DJ at that point didn't play as an important of a role as it does today but it was still kind of an art and a craft, and I understood that. And I was just very interested, you know, technically, what is this guy doing? I see two record players, I see this mixer. What is this guy doing? You know, he's doing these blends, and, you know, he's playing four and five hours and has this big arc through the night and controls the crowd. The whole thing was very interesting to me. And the music was very simple at the time. So me, you know, I had musical ideas. I was like, I could do this. You know, I was looking at the DJ. I'm like, I think I understand what he's doing. I could do this. Anyway, fast forward a few years. I kept going to this nightclub and going more often. And, you know, midweek parties started happening. Okay,
0: but what do your parents say? My parents were cool. They
1: were just kind of like... What are you doing in this city? What's going on? I'm like, "Ah, I'm dancing, you know? And they're like, How do you dance? What are you? My dad thought that was funny, you know? (laughs) Show us how you dance. What are you doing? You know, I'm like, Oh, we're dancing like this and it's awesome. (laughs) And there's, you know, hundreds of people there and it's a fun time. And I think my parents were just happy that I was out doing something, not. And they didn't care
0: that you were out till midnight. As long as I was home on time, they were cool with it. Because my parents, I was a middle child. I mean, they really cracked down on my older sister. But they just trusted me. I could do whatever I want, come out. Oh, yeah. My brother's got the beat down,
1: especially the oldest one. And that's the way it is. Even my oldest child now, she for sure gets the worst, you know. By the time you get to the second one, you're like loosening up. Third one, you're like, ah, whatever.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So in any event, you go to the club, you say, hey, I think I can do this. What's the next step? Really, for me, then I just started buying all these records
1: that I'm hearing. Because it's not stuff you can really get on the radio. And I think this is where Chicago comes into play, right? Because it's accessible right? I'm part of this scene and this clique of people that are listening to these records and these DJs are playing them and there's parties going on. Gramophone Records is not too far from the nightclub that I'm frequenting. You know, it's like three blocks away. So it's in the same neighborhood. So I could go to Gramophone, which is arguably the first specialty like house music record store in the world. Um, and I'm flipping through there and I'm taking, listen, all my money at that point is going into records, and I'm like flipping through this stuff. I think my first time with a set of turntables because this stuff is too expensive. The equipment's too expensive for me right. to afford. You know, I can get a record here and there and whatnot, but to get a set of 1200s and a mixer, that's way beyond my reach. Um, uh, a kid had ripped some off, and we were at his house. One of these house. Parties. Well, he'd ripped
0: off some turntables. He'd ripped off some from
1: where? T- so you know, he's like, I saw him in a car, but <laughs> I could care less. I just was like, I want to try this. And, you know, that night, instead of going to the club, we are up, you know, for hours just trying to figure out what they're doing and understanding the beat matching and that. I mean, it wasn't until years later that I got my own setup. And then I was like, oh, okay, cool. You know,
0: I can Okay, so you're in high school. How old are you when this friend uh, lifts these turntables? Yeah, 16, 17 16. years old. Yeah. Okay, so at this point, you're just collecting records. Collecting records. Okay, and you do this at the friend's house once. Do you say, oh, this is just a fun night, or no, this is a career path? Oh, man, just a fun night. I never thought career path until
1: <laughs> very recently. In the in the big picture of this story, it was a recent thing.
0: Okay, so when you graduate from high school, you still don't own any turntables? Nope. Okay, and how many records do you think you own? Uh, you know, two, three hundred. Okay, you so you're I'm an sure. avid collector. Yeah. Okay, so... Now it comes time to go to college, you go to BYU. Yep. Okay. Having lived in Utah for a couple of years, although back in the 70s, you know, BYU is the epicenter of LDS, and although religious, and you are LDS, you are a Mormon, and that would be a place, but it's known as being a relatively conservative place. Rightfully so. Okay. (laughs) So how does that work for you? Uh... (laughs) It
1: was eye-opening. I th- look, a kid growing up in Chicago, my, my brothers both went to BYU, and they're like, hey, it's great, it's fun, it's cool. And I think that for me, I wanted to go
0: there because I wanted to be around other Mormons. We'll take a quick break and come back with more of my conversation with Cascade, recorded at the Tune In Studios in Venice, California. This podcast is brought to you by TuneIn, which brings together all the live sports, music, news, and podcasts you love. Original, live, and on-demand audio, all in one place. Go to TuneIn.com slash LeftSets to download and listen. Okay, let's get back to my conversation with Cascade. Okay, so you go to BYU. Yep. And your expectations, according to your brothers, is going to be great, but what's your experience? Uh, I loved it. And I think, once again, this
1: kind of plays back to me launching my career. So I've got crates of records. And my brothers, I'm in one of these, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, fraternity. It's more like a social club. They didn't call them fraternities there because they'd get suspended or whatever. But it's essentially a social club, a fraternity. And they're like, we need to throw a party and raise some money. And I'm like, I got crates of records. (laughs) I know how to spin these things, I think. So we hire some mobile DJ guy, and I'm like, Yo, I'll I'll play the music that night. I just need your equipment. So that was my first like real gig. This is 1989.
0: <laughs> okay, and how many nights had you spent on the turntables? Very prior few. To Very few. I mean, few. this is like. You know, a bunch of kids
1: from southern... You know, these are all, like, transplants that are living in Provo, Utah. I'm like, they're not going to know the difference. I'll try my best. (laughs) Is that your attitude in life in general? (laughs) You know, fake it till you make it? (laughs) No, not really. But I just knew...
0: I I, Listen, I was confident that I could do it. Okay. So, but once again, to what degree do you fit in? Kid from Chicago going to nightclubs every night, now in conservative Provo, Utah. Um... I made lifelong friends there that first
1: year cuz I was meeting kids I met a kid from San Francisco became a really good friend another kid from Cocoa Beach Florida you know I was meeting people from all over the place some kid from Venezuela so I was meeting all these different kids and hearing about their experiences growing up Mormon whatever for me it was it was cool I Not everyone has a good experience there, but for me, it was great. Well, the only
0: reason I ask is you didn't go back there. You ultimately transferred to the University of Utah. That was because
1: of my lack of uh, studying (laughs) that first year. I had a lot of fun that first year. I was really tan. When I went home, it was a very warm spring, so when I showed up back home in in Chicago, I was like (laughs) tan from playing Frisbee out at the park and,
0: you know. But let's speak English here. Were you not asked back to BYU? So I went on a mission after my first year. Okay, just so I know, for my audience, traditionally, is that when people go?
1: Yes. Now a lot of kids go before they start school. That kind of seems like a better time now. People are just, you know, go to high school, go on the mission, then come back and start college. I went to my first year, my freshman year.
0: Okay, and then then you go on the mission to Japan?
1: Yep, Tokyo, Japan. So,
0: So that's for two years? Yes. Two years. In those two years... Do you come back to the States at all? No. And you go to Japan with how many other people?
1: Uh, There's a group of eight of us.
0: But there's already
1: like 160 missionaries living in, when I say Tokyo, it's like northern Tokyo and the northern suburbs of Tokyo. It's a large area that that covers. So like in your town, say Santa Monica, there would be two missionaries, you know, stationed there. And then you go to like... Culver City, there would be another two missionaries, you know. Stationed. Okay, so
0: you're living with another guy in some suburb of Tokyo. Yep. And then you have your own apartment with this guy. Yes. And what's the, what are you supposed to do every day? Uh, proselyte. Teach. You but know,
1: talk you, to people about. Yeah, but you don't speak Japanese, right? No, I mean, I took a crash course for two months, you okay. know, before you go out, um, which is, you know, crash course and. How, how are you going to talk to these people? One language-wise, and what are you going to talk to them about? What's what's the right way to approach this? Because right. In my life up to this point, you know, my conversations about being Mormon were like just with my friends from high right. school and whatever, and like, oh, hey, this is what I believe. Oh, what do you believe? And so, kind of refining that process, uh, um, and then then really it takes me. You know, luckily, learning Japanese wasn't wasn't that hard. I would say I. Uh, I but wasn't that hard for you? you people it? are good with, with yes. languages. I, I was, that was it. It was, which is weird because I failed out of Spanish in high school. But <laughs> it's like one of those things I wanted to do. I wanted to learn Japanese right. and I was there and early on the, the second place that I lived, I was actually living with a Japanese guy. So I'm like, man. I better start really hitting the books. And I studied hard. I mean, every day I was up, you know, at the crack of dawn studying for an hour or two before we went out and, you know, we're meeting people. So I was studying and carrying around vocabulary words. But I'd say a year into it I felt, like, conf- confident I could have a, you know, okay. a discussion with someone.
0: So you, you, how does it actually work? you knock on someone's door?
1: Uh, in Japan, that's kind of culturally a little not right. so okay. nice. Right. Um, so we spent a lot of time because I was – in or really close to Tokyo, m- the majority of my mission. Um, so I would hang around the train station a lot of times. Or, and just like walk up to random people, hey, you know, what do you know about Jesus Christ? And like have a conversation if they want to or not. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of kekko uh, like, I'm okay, I'm okay. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. Um, but, and then other times people just, mm, referrals. They hear about, Somebody who's Mormon or their friend's Mormon and they want to learn about it or, you know, so there's that. that Okay, so sometimes
0: you're educating people who've already been converted to a degree as opposed to trying to find. Now, it's sort of like being a salesman. I would think you get a lot of rejection. Yes, a lot. And how does that feel? How do you handle that? Didn't bother me really. I mean— I grew up in
1: Chicago, so I was like, okay, not everyone's interested in religion <laughs> like I am. You know? okay. I, I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood. I knew that you know, this is part of the deal. You know, people have different thoughts and ideas and, and whatever. I think missionaries are there, and my primary job was to speak to people that are looking for something and that want help. You know? So, okay, cool. The, 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 the key is to find those people, right, <laughs> to come in contact with those people.
0: Okay, so two years go by, and then you go back to Utah. Why do you not go back to BYU? Actually I went to New York and worked for a Japanese company.
1: I went to New York for a year, which is Okay, was fun. so wait, wait, was wait this is important. Yeah. So,
0: okay, so you, you go to BYU for a year, you yep. go to Japan for 2 years, yep. then you go to New York to work for a Japanese company. How does that come together?
1: Uh, I just interviewed with a company. I was like, I'm going back. I didn't have any money, you know. I was like, I you know, I got to go back to school. I could use the job. So I interviewed with this Japanese company that was hiring, like, a lot of Mormon kids because, oh, cool, these kids can speak Japanese. So we're tour guides around the city of New York, um, which is funny. I'd been to New York a few times, but I didn't know the city that well. So I'm, like, telling these people about New York City, and I actually didn't know that much. But
0: I learned. So how long were you a tour guide for? uh, About a year. And, you know, wouldn't most people go back to college instead of uh, having a uh, tour guide job?
1: Yeah, probably.
0: I mean, did your parents, were your parents concerned that you might not go back
1: to college? No, not at this point. I think they're still like, "Uh, what's he doing? I mean, they were like that a lot
0: around me. What's Ryan doing? (laughs) Okay. So if you're living in New York, do you need any of their money or you can make enough money to make it? Uh, I was making money. Okay, so New York, epicenter of dance music. Yep. Are you involved then? I'm going
1: out. I'm going out every night that I can. I mean, I'm working like a dog. The place worked me like crazy. I mean, I kept my time sheets for a long time because I was like, man, we could sue these guys. (laughs) Right, right, right. We need overtime, you know. Um, But, yeah, I'm going out. Uh, A lot of stuff is happening because it's 2003, 2004. I mean, dance music is in New York in full swing. It can't be. It's got to be like
0: 1993, 94. Uh, yes, sorry. Okay, thank you very much. I've lost a decade there. <laughs> okay, just want to make sure here.
1: <laughs> yes. Okay. Right. That's okay. These so yeah. <laughs> so
0: but not that dance music isn't happening. But as yeah. we're working on the timeline. Yeah. So and there's then, a lot of stuff happening. Yeah.
1: Yep. Going out. Club USA was in full swing. That was right there in Times Square, right off of Times Square. Um, Limelight was happening. Um, which there was a Limelight in Chicago as well that I went to in high school. So, you know, it was just cool. Dance music had matured a bit more. I'd become more musical. It was less just drums and bass. Right, less industrial. Yeah. Um, But that's really, at that point, I saved up enough money, bought my own setup, went back to Utah. I went back to you and bought my own setup. Okay, I've got some records. I've got some equipment. I'm playing some stuff here and there. I go back to Utah. Wait, wait, let's just be clear. Yeah.
0: You buy the turntables in New York or in Utah? In Utah. You mail-ordered this stuff. Uh, Okay, okay, so... If this when you leave New York, you're just interested in the scene. You go back to Utah, and what's your plan? Get through college. Okay, why do you go to the U, as they say in Salt Lake, the University of Utah. Yeah, the U. As opposed to uh BYU. Uh because I knew I wasn't getting back in to
1: BYU. My first year was terrible. Oh, so if you wanted to go back to BYU, that would they that would have been a problem. It would have. I didn't even reapply because after you've taken a break, you know, I've been off two and a half, three years now. I'm like, okay, I either reapply and get rejected or I can go to the U and the, U, the University of Utah is a great school and Salt Lake is a happening
0: place. Well, the funniest thing you know? is when I lived in Salt Lake, I lived in the avenues yeah. and we were all ski bums. And uh, I'd already graduated from college but my two roommates. They would go to the U and they would sign up for the winter, sem- <laughs> you know, for the spring semester. It would snow and they'd drop out. They eventually graduated, but <laughs> right up there like in the me. office. I took a few winter semesters basically off. I'd take
1: one or two classes. Right. You and, you, and you'd go snowboarding? Yeah. And where would you go?
0: Brighton. Had a season pass to Brighton for four years. Okay, Big Cottonwood Canyon. Yep. Okay, so now you go back to Utah and you do buy the turntables. Yep. Okay, so you and you buy the 1200s? Yes, I did. 1200s, yep. And you buy a mixer. You say you buy a mail order. Do you remember who you
1: ordered it from? Pro Sound and Stage. Okay. And this is where everybody's buying the stuff from. They send you these catalogs and this is kind of like they were the dj place you know but this is back before the internet you know you'd get these catalogs in the Right. Crowd. yeah
0: so okay so you have an apartment where you live in utah
1: uh uh just right downtown okay 3rd east okay um yep and then i moved to the avenues i had an av- i had a house on 11th avenue in between right. d and e yeah okay so i mean i was in that little area okay right?
0: so you have your turntables yep. you're going to school how much you work in the turntables in practicing a lot. At that point, a lot,
1: because I had time on my hands. I thought I was busy, but I didn't, okay. know, busy, I didn't know busy Compared really to uh, being a Japanese
0: guy in New York, you weren't busy. Yeah. And at this point, you're just having fun, and you say, I'm going to get good, and I'm going to work. I'm having fun. I'm having a lot of fun. I'm snowboarding a
1: lot, and I'm spinning records a lot. It's okay. an, but you're but spinning records yeah, at this point what? At this point, I'm a much better student, because I had— put my mind to it that I can get through school. I had learned a lot of good study habits while I was in Japan. I'll say that. I learned some discipline while I was in Tokyo. So that was a good thing. Came out of it. Much better student. But I'm spending... Basically, I'm spending my days and nights going to school, spinning records and snowboarding. That was it. Okay, when you're spinning records just for yourself or you're playing gigs? A lot in my bedroom, just hanging out, playing records. And in 95, this is kind of when it all changed for me. It was the first time like, oh, you can make money doing this. Well, in 94, I was... I also had a part-time job selling jeans at uh, the Chalk Garden. Uh, do you remember Trolley Square? Of course. We Around I worked at right. this place called the Chalk Garden, Trolley Square. And I lost my job. And I still, my parents were helping me out at this point, but... You were not, losing, you lost your job, why? I uh, lost <laughs> my job. Oh, I don't know. They were cutting back. I don't know. Jeans weren't
0: selling like Okay, but was, it, was it wasn't your behavior. No, no, no. Okay, so your
1: parents were still helping you out a little. Sub me out a little bit, but um, not enough that I could just, like, live on what they're sending me. You know, there was a small monthly stipend, and, like, I needed a job to supplement that if I wanted to eat um, and put gas in the car in my Honda Accord. So, anyway, uh, that's—in 95, I approached this club called Club Manhattan. It was a small 300-person club. The capacity was 299 people. That was—not making that up, the sign on the door, 299 people. And I said, what's your worst night of the week? Because I've got crates of records that nobody's heard. And by this time, I mean I'd put a lot of time into the craft, you know. Two, three years, I'd hone the craft a bit. Um, And he's like, Monday night, I can't get anybody in here. Let's start from the beginning. Now you're living in Utah where you're buying your records. A lot of mail order, still from Gramophone. So you could call guys up and be like, all right, I've got 75 bucks. you know, what's hot this week. And they'd send you stuff. But San Francisco's got a great tweak in, was another record store in San Francisco, lower hate. They were mail-ordering stuff uh, here in L.A., Beat Nonstop, um, was a massive record store in Melrose. Um, so there's a lot of guys you could call up, and they were shipping you stuff. So I'm getting records sent to me.
0: And is there anybody doing this in Utah prior to you? Is there anybody? There is. is the so DJ- there is one record store in Utah, which I no, but i, I, I mean, in terms of, them out. In terms of DJs.
1: There were some guys doing it. There was a dude from San Francisco, Nick Hammer, another guy from L.A. Um, You know, there were guys doing it. Okay, so
0: you go to this club and you say, and he says, Monday night's
1: my weeknight. You say? I'm like, give it to me. And he's like, all right, cool. Um, And he's like, we'll just split the door. I'm like, all right, cool. We'll charge a couple bucks at the door. You know, it was mainly students. I was going to, you know, just hit up my friends, you know, call them up. Anyway,
0: Monday night was a smash. The first night we did it, like 400 people showed up. Okay. That must have been because you worked your the phones, so to speak. You told all your friends to come. You know what it was? It was
1: snowboarding. Because me and my roommates, it's a very social thing. Just right. like you said, you had all these skier buddies. Right, right, I mean, right. dude, there's like this community of people. I mean, people that are coming from like Amsterdam that lived there for the season. So we knew all these people because it was not only – I'm not the only guy snowboarding every day. Right, it's right, like right. me and all my buddies that were all living together – and, dude, we just put the word out. Sure enough, 400 people later, I'm like, this is a smash. The club owner's freaking out. You know, I'm walking home with, like, 300 bucks in my pocket. And I'm like, I am king of the world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to sell jeans again ever. You know, so I, I that was a lot of money at the time for me. Okay, uh, so now it's the following Monday night. So it just keeps going. I was there at that club for five years doing Monday nights, and I only missed a couple of them the entire Time. So after you tap the snowboard crew, does word get out in town? Yeah, because it's a small town. I mean, you're talking like, what, a million people or right. something like this. So that whole valley, and dude, there's no other competition on right. Monday night. Like, So that was the place. If you went out Monday night, that was the place to go. So then, you know, we raised the door price to five bucks. The entire city's showing up at this place. It becomes a problem. The city's trying to shut me down. They wrote me a few citations to the club, you know, over overcrowding, all this stuff, you know, serving a minor, you know, so it was a hit. And then I started doing other, I did a Thursday night for them, and then people around town started hiring me. Um, But all of this is happening, and it's the first time I had a little bit of cash. So I started buying studio equipment. Bought my first 808, drum machine, Roland 909, another drum machine, an SH-101, small keyboard. So I started, like, amassing equipment, And that's how I was spending my days. So by this time, I'm out of school. I'm like, okay, I I love this Madonna record, Vogue, whatever. But I don't like the arrangement. So I start getting in Digital Audio Workstation. I had a, you know, a Mac 7100, (laughs) you know, pretty basic Mac. But um, I had a four-track Pro Tools set up on there Uh, on my first copy of Logic, and that's really where I just started getting into it. And then it's just like all in. Once that happened and I had a small setup, I was like, okay, this is what I was doing every day. Um, And I put together my, in 1997, I put together my first kind of record that I sold commercially. Um,
0: And it's it's a bad record. How did you do that, though? You recorded it, and how did you get it? In terms of press distributed, et cetera. So, press the Rainbow Records here. Rainbow Records, yeah. Yep. Used to be in Santa Las- Monica. Yep. Okay. Out I've of been there. Los, Los
1: Angeles, yeah. Right. So, I called those guys up, and that's what people on the West Coast, that's who they were using. Right. They were kind of like the premier guys. Um, and uh, during all this, uh, the record store um, that was local in town, which I basically was hanging out at a lot you know it's very um john cusack you know like right. hanging out just like arguing over what records are better and you know and this is where you know practice djing it's just like where all the djs were hanging out um but one of the owners left uh to to go work in uh, Korea for the Olympics. So I bought her half out. So I was part owner in this record store, but I had a relationship with the record distributors. So I was like, listen, I buy thousands of dollars of records from you guys every week. I've got a record. I'm going to sell it to you, and you guys are going to buy it. I don't care if you think it's crap. And they did. They bought it. Okay,
0: but did anybody buy it at retail?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, listen, we're talking back then a couple thousand copies was a success. You right. Know, you're making like a thousand bucks. Oh, my gosh. This... Yeah, but, you know,
0: so the people in Utah bought it. They knew who you were.
1: Yeah, but, and it was a drum and bass record, so it's a very niche thing. It was a very like London sounding record. Um, you know, I, it's hard to even track at that point because you're just selling it. You well, you're know, you know, but, like, you know,
0: but the point is you make a deal, you ship the records. Yep. If they don't sell, they usually come back. Yeah, they didn't come back. So so you assume they sold? I mean, but they, it's such a small quantity. You know, okay. Like, but even so, a thousand records, somebody had to buy it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you make that record. What's the next step? Um,
1: well, this is kind of, you know, late 90s, so things are starting to happen again for dance music because the late 90s, early 2000s was kind of that first wave of Moby and, you know, what did they called it, electronica. Right. And, you know, everybody was bracing for this thing that was coming that never came. Really came, right. <laughs> but, um. You know, so I was getting gigs and I was starting to do stuff. And um my wife at this point, uh well, married in 96, so. A um, little, little bit slower. How do you meet your wife? Snowboarding. Really? Yeah. And did she, what was she doing in Salt Lake? That. She's from Northern California. She was one of these girls who would come to Salt Lake. I met her um, in 94. She came back in 95 and i met her again because they would just come out for the season right this is what these people do right right these guys believe me up. i know yeah they shot for, for three, three four for California, exactly yeah and you know and they'd ride and you'd see them and you'd be friends with them then they'd leave and i'd stay there
0: you know? but did she go to college
1: uh she did she graduated from the u university okay. of utah yeah
0: so then so you know her for a couple of years before it becomes a romance
1: no i knew her i met her she came back and right away I was interested in her. I was like, Oh yeah, I remember her from last year. She's awesome,
0: you know. Okay, and she responds? Yeah, it's good. Okay. She? <laughs> okay, so uh how long after you meet her do you get married? Uh eight months. Eight months? Hey, listen. Mormon- well it's lasted, so it's good. I mean, listen, in Mormon world that's like that's that's ten years. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was quick. It was uh Okay, so you quick. get married, how big a ceremony is it?
1: Um a hundred friends and family in San Francisco.
0: Um and what's the entertainment? A band. Okay. No so DJ. You're, no DJ. Okay, so anyway, you're living in Utah, you're married, you own the half of this record store. Yep. So what happens next? You put out a record.
1: Put out a record, you know, whatever, a little bit of success. Um Well, I just kind of start noticing the industry. I'm like, who's successful in this industry and what's working? And I'm kind of just trying to pay attention because I'm like, can I make a living doing this? Like, how does it work? You know, Um, because here I am, the kid of a conservative family. And my dad was just conservative across the board, meaning financially. He was very like, you know, go to college, get a degree, get a job, you know, just follow the path, you know, stay on course, you know. And here I am, like I want to do music, right. <laughs> like, and I wasn't even necessarily saying that because I was scared to say that out loud because I didn't want to. I wanted to be successful, so I was like, I don't know, music's fun, and right, 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 right. But I'm trying to do all this other stuff. I was working in an ad agency for a brief period of time, you know, doing graphic design for them, and um, you know, I felt really comfortable on a computer, so I was doing various jobs here and there. Um, but really. I, I just started to understand how the business of independent music was working. And I should say, independent dance music. Okay, you can press a record, you can sell it, okay, you can get these gigs. And I slowly started getting gigs outside of Utah, very slowly. Where? The very first gig I went to uh, outside of Utah was in Seoul, Korea. This guy's like, he's passing through Salt Lake, gets one of my mixtapes, he's like, this is brilliant. I'll fly out here for a ticket, and you'll play for nothing, but I'll, you can stay on my couch. And I'm like, all right, cool. Late 90s, so I go to Korea. I get a you know, I get a gig in Orange County. Like, little things are happening, very small things, but I think it was enough to be like, okay, potentially this could work. Right. I'm just going to keep doing it. Not only that, the club is still happening at this time, so I'm still making money doing it. Right. Um, you know, and I'm just buying. I mean, dude, I'm buying so much music. Because I'm just a junkie at this point. I'm just buying music, buying studio gear, and you know, putting nothing into like where I live. You know, I'm still living like a college student, eating like five dollar pizza every night. You know, so it's all going into music and studio equipment. Um, and really, when my wife graduated in '99, uh, 2000, uh, she's like, "Cool. She's not from Salt Lake. She didn't feel any attachment to that place." And you know, I'd been there for seven years or eight years, whatever. Uh, adding all this time up of me going in and out of that place. I, I didn't really either. And right. I was like, okay, cool. You know, I had spent some time in New York. I said, let's go to New York. <clears throat> she's like, no, let's go to San Francisco. Where she's from. Yeah. She's from Reading, which is way north.
0: Oh, yeah, that's not San Francisco. No,
1: it's not. <laughs> not at all. Uh, that's a stretch. But her grandma lived in San Francisco, and she felt like, that's a place, and that's happening, and I think a lot of Reading people kind of end up in San Francisco, at or you know, or Santa Cruz, or you know, in that area. We just were like, okay, whoever can get a job first, that's where we'll go. So at the time, you know, I'm emailing my, attaching my resume and sending it out to these job places in New York, which was a very tech thing at the time. I was very proud of to be able to do that. Um, and she just got in the car. I mean, maybe, like, not even a week after we graduated, she packed up the car, drove to
0: San Francisco, calls me up, like, three days later, is like, I got a job. Okay, well, wait, wait, just stop here a little bit. Yeah. You're married. Yeah. You're living in a couple. She leaves, she packs up the car, goes to New York, and says, and goes to San Francisco and says, what? I've got it. Well, because we had this kind of thing going. Whoever gets a job. I know, but the point is, when you say when she left Salt Lake, she didn't have the job.
1: No. She's like, I'm going to go there and get a job, which— I'm sure if I would have flown to New York, I probably would have been a lot more successful, you know. You need to be there in people's faces, and she understood that. Okay, so she goes to San Francisco and gets what kind of job? I'm just working for like one of these dot-com, you know, things that's happening. Okay, so she
0: calls you and says, this is our deal. you got to move out. She's like, i got a
1: job. It's a great job. Pays okay. You know, load it up. And I'm like, oh, man, she did it. (laughs) (laughs) So I loaded up. We moved to San Francisco. Um, definitely take a step back in lifestyle. Uh, move into a crummy apartment that was terrible, that I couldn't fit my studio into. You know, my gear, my racks of gear. I'm like, I can't fit into this. This is, but it's all we could afford at the time. So I put so what, everything.
0: What did you do with the stuff?
1: I put the stuff in storage momentarily. Um, And until I figured out something, you know, it took me a while to figure some stuff out. A few variations of living, you know, we're bouncing around in different apartments. And when we first got there, we just lived with a friend, you know, crashed on his floor, found an apartment. And it was tough. I mean, but the cool thing, and this is crucial to my story, I think, um, I kind of saw this wave again of excitement. I mean, San Francisco in the early 2000s was just crazy, there's piles of money being loaded into the city. The dot-com thing is going crazy. Rents are going through the roof. But everyone's out partying every night. So the club scene and just DJing is just – it's going crazy. The whole thing's going crazy. So I recognize that because I had experienced that first wave in Chicago when I saw house music break, which it took me moving to Salt Lake to be like, oh, man – not everywhere is experiencing this. That, right. was, that was Chicago, New York, London. Wow. You know, I had to get that separation, that distance to be able to look at it and be like, wow, I was in the middle of something that was a cultural phenomenon and I had no idea. But I was more of kind of an onlooker, you know. I, I wasn't like actively participating. I mean, I was going out and dancing, but I wasn't like making waves. I wasn't one of these guys setting the trends. I was just following them. Uh, but in San Francisco, I kind of realized that a second wave was happening and it was going on there in the city. And part of that, I think, was because the arts were flourishing because there was so much money around. So all these artists and studios and just so much was going on in the city. Um, and this is when Naked Records and Ohm Records and all these little like boutique-y small labels that I was paying attention to really started to thrive. Um, and I got a
0: record at Ohm, I got a job at Ohm Records. Just to be clear, you moved to San Francisco. Your wife has this job. Before you get the job at Home Records, do you have a different job?
1: Uh, I went to the distributor that I was buying records from in San Francisco, TRC Distribution, and worked for them for a few months until I got my job with the label.
0: Okay. How many people worked at Home when you worked there?
1: Um, It's about 10 full-time employees. How hard was it to get that job? My timing was good. Okay. The owner needed an assistant. And I had been pitching them music. I had been sending them some of my demos. And they had bought one of them under a different moniker, Skylight. was under right, this right, other right. thing. So I had a relationship with the owner. I showed up. I didn't you know, have anything going on. I'm working at this distributor. It's like basically just at an art, uh, you know, a warehouse fulfilling right, record orders. store orders you know, right. and talking to record stores on the phone. Um, and he's like, yeah, the guy who has your job has just left. He left to do this digital thing, iTunes. They're going to start this thing <laughs> over at Apple. I don't know if this is going to work. <laughs> you know, who knows? Bruno Ybarra had just recently left. That was his old assistant, and he was there at the ground floor when they started iTunes. Um, and, you know, funny to think back on that now. Right, absolutely. Um, but, yeah, so I stepped into his spot, and they needed somebody, and it was cool because I could – I could listen to all the demos and filter stuff through to the boss and, and, but I was also a DJ and I was also pitching him demos and I could run their studio. They had a small studio. So I was running sessions at that studio. Uh, by this time I've got some time under my belt and I feel, you know, fairly comfortable at a, at a mixing desk and like, I know what I'm doing. Um, and it was a help that I had graphic design stuff too. So, you know, I mean, it's these small labels. Everybody does everything, right? right? We're all pitching in to make this thing move. Uh, and it was working, and it was a good time for them. They had a compilation series. The you know early 2000 compilations were doing really well. Um, they had a compilation series, the Home Lounge, that was doing awesome, and Mark Farina with Mushroom Jazz. He's one of their premier artists on that label. And, um, and it was a fun time. And I was there for a couple years until, well, I launched the name Cascade really soon after I got there and got more demos in the mix. And my my I was making music then that I felt like, okay, this is commercially viable. And I was influenced by the scene and what was happening. It was kind of this hybrid of Chicago meets San Francisco because San Francisco house music was very melodic compared to Chicago. Chicago stuff was very gritty, very you know, 8-bit sounding, very lo-fi. And San Francisco is more smooth and and beautiful and melodic. So I was like, I can marry these two worlds and make my own sound. Um, But that was another thing. I I think that was the first time I experienced... Then this is kind of like, do you remember Sneaker Pimps? Yeah, sure. And stuff, that wave of kind of down-tempo electronic music was happening. And it was clear to me that songwriting was an important part of what electronic music was going because back, dude, st- even to this day, ninety-eight percent of electronic music's instrumental, you know. Uh, and I sat in on these sessions, and I was getting hired for remixes, and the remixes were doing well. And I was like, "Man, production styles here and are there. I mean, I have my own preferences of how I like things to sound, but songwriting is really the key. I mean, if you write a good song, it stays. You can produce it this way or that way, and it doesn't matter. People are going to love it." So that's, with that idea is why I launched Cascade. I'm like, this is going to be melodic-based because up, up until Ryan Radden tracks and Radon tracks and all these other little names that I was testing out were just me experimenting. But with Cascade, I was like, it's going to be more melodic. It's going to be song-based. And I'm going to try my hand at songwriting because I had a friend who was like, man, you're dude, it's all about songwriting. and You're a pretty good writer. You should, you know, you need to try and, put your ideas into a song and that's really what's gonna set you apart and I agreed so then I was like okay cool that's my that's my lane because I, I could see that the, the guys that were doing successful they all kind of had their thing you know Miguel Miggs was huge in the city at the time and he was like you know he had his thing he had a whole vibe and his music had this style so anyway that's it's kind of where up to that point
0: okay two questions How long after you moved to San Francisco do you move to a place where your equipment can be in the uh, apartment you rent? A couple years. Okay, so you really can only work when you're at home. Actually, it was a year and a half now
1: that I think about it. I was on Polk Street. Yeah, I was working at home. I moved a bunch of my equipment into home now that
0: I think about that. Okay, (laughs) and although one can look it up on the internet, people are certainly going to be fascinated. How do you come up with the name Cascade? I had sold
1: some music to a Chicago label and it was the first kind of jaunt in this more song based stuff. And it's funny, the, the, the A&R over there, Lady D who's an accomplished DJ in her own right and producer and whatnot. I was like, I don't want to name it Ryan Rad. And she's like, well, you got two weeks to come and give me a name, <laughs> you know, cause this thing's going to go to press and we got to do artwork. So take the two weeks and you know, whatever two weeks goes by and like literally the night before I'm just like flipping through a nature book and there's a picture of a waterfall and I'm like, Cascade. And I go to my wife, hey, what do you think of Cascade? And then, you know, the next day at lunch, you know, we're all sitting there in the office. I'm like, what do you guys think of the name of Cascade? And they're like, yeah, it's cool. It's memorable. Cascade's super memorable. And I just liked the idea because I wanted it, I wanted the sound of this project to be more organic. I wanted it to feel and I always liked nature and I thought, oh, Cascade's cool. And then my wife was like, oh, but there's, You got to change the spelling. I'm like, I'll just use K's instead of C's. And no one will know. Cause she was like, oh, there's a dish detergent that's that. And I'm like, okay, we'll change the spelling. And that was it. And it's funny when I called the AR, like, all right, I've got the name. She's like, it took you two weeks to come up with that. (laughs) Are you serious? (laughs) Like, oh man, (laughs)
0: Psew. Like, she just brought me right back down to earth. You're listening to my conversation with Cascade, recorded at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. Hope you're enjoying this episode of the Bob Left Sets Podcast. If you want to see videos, photos, and sound bites from Cascade and our other guests, visit at TuneIn on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to see them with me in the studio. Now, more of my chat with Cascade on the Bob Left Sets Podcast. Okay, so at this point, we're in what year? Um, Two thousand three. Two thousand three. What's your wife doing? She got a
1: job. The dot com thing fizzled out. Whatever. She got a job working for Levi Strauss. Their headquarters is there in San Francisco. Oh, that's so cool. She's working at their office. And, and what about that.
0: What about issues of
1: kids? No kids yet. Okay. We're still just loving life hanging okay. Out. Easy, okay, so it's Easy two, street.
0: Okay. So you, suddenly you're a cascade and uh, they press up this record cascade. What's the next step?
1: Um, grinding it. Really from 2003 to the first like seven, eight, nine years. Really, uh, things started to change in 2008, 2009, 2010. I think 2010 was kind of like a 2009, 2010. That's when things changed. But up until then, just grinding. I was working the job you know, 40, 50 hours a week, and then I'm just in the studio every waking moment. It's good that we didn't have kids because I, I'm sure our relationship would have been destroyed. I was already, like, hanging on by a thread because it's like, I'm in the studio or I'm at work. I'm in the studio at the work. But it was fun because, you know, we're young and we're enjoying the city and having a great time, and she's got a lot of friends in the Bay Area. So it, it, it worked. Um, but I was putting out more records, putting out more records, seeing a little success, and I started touring a lot. Okay, um, how did you start touring? Um, after Ohm put me out on a couple compilations and put out a couple singles, that's when people started taking note because that record kind of had, it had clout within this little scene, right? And, uh, so when they kind of were like, Hey, this guy's cool and he's making cool music, that changed things. So people started phoning me up, and I got a booking agent. And it was very; she was in house at Home Records for all the little small time artists that weren't big enough to have a real booking agent. They would call through her, and all the requests would come through her. And um, I started gigging, and then um, I did my first like uh, Australia tour. I did like well, well, before six. you get to
0: Australia, you're gigging yep. in the United States, all over the place. How often? Almost every weekend. Almost every weekend, and you're driving yourself there,
1: you're flying. Flying. The- I'm solo, no tour manager, nothing like that, just flying to these yeah. places. I mean, th- th- these gigs are paying like $500, $400. So you do a couple of those a week, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred, $900, a thousand bucks. Oh man, okay, cool. I can make a living. You know, I'm doing anywhere from like five gigs a month to 10 gigs a month. And, and you're still working at home, still getting paid at home. Still getting paid at home. That came to a crash landing i kind of screwed up one of the projects while i was away um the artwork files weren't right and i came back and he's like look it's cool your thing's starting to take off you're not going to be able to do both of these but i wasn't at a point where we could survive i needed both incomes really um to be living in san francisco so uh he cut me away (laughs) which was very nice of him um chris smith the the guy who ran it was really nice of him where's he today he's still running on records still in san francisco Um, um, and, uh, I took my wife out to a very nice dinner (laughs) that I couldn't afford (laughs) and said, Hey, uh, I've lost my job, but we're going to be all right. And I felt that way. I was like, we'll be all right. I think this is going to work. You know, I started feeling more and more confident that I was out there. I just needed some more time to kind of like gain, get some steam going. Um, and I don't know. I think back then it was just such a hustle because there was so little money. I think back then people were seeing me as successful, but you know, whatever I'm making sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year living in San Francisco, we're dying. We're we're going under each month, or so just a little bit farther. Um, but I just kept at it, you know. Uh, I don't know why, just because what I I knew how to do it. And by this time, I've got a decade or more of. History. I understood the industry. It's like, I don't know what else I'd do at this point, you know? And you're talking about going to Australia. So I went to Australia. Yeah, that's when the de- debacle happened. I came back.
0: Okay. And he's
1: like, you he oh, screwed man, up. Okay. So now you're
0: continuing to live in San Francisco and it's not working economically. The same woman at Olm still booking you? Yep. Okay. So what's the next step? And
1: then I get a manager, uh Stephanie LaFera. Uh, I forget what year that was. It was about, let's see. I don't know, this is 2004, 2005, 2000, eh, yeah, right around there, 2005, 2006, something like this. She hears my music. She's based in New York. She's working at the office that books Moby and manages them, and she's a young intern kind of uh, assistant coming up, finds my music, loves it. Hey, can I help you out? I'm like, sure. How much does that cost? You know, right. like, How do you do this, you know? Um, and so then I kind of had a small team going. I had me a manager, a booking agent, and it slowly started to grow.
0: And how many nights a work week
1: are you working then? I'm taking every gig that I can take. It didn't even matter. I mean, they didn't know that at the time. If right. they offered me $200 or $1,000, I would take it. It didn't matter. I mean, I was paying gigs for next to nothing. But back then, that was super crucial because nobody, there's no radio stations. There's no way to get people to hear your music. You know, there's no Spotify. There's no, there's no the only way to play people your music is to get out there and play them in nightclubs. And there are a clique of kids that were very devoted to the underground like there is now. It's just much bigger, and it's more of a festival scene now. But, you know, there's underground house music clubs in every city from New York to L.A. and Tokyo, whatever. They're all over the place. There had been a wave of guys that had come before me, the Eric Marillos and the Junior Vasquez and Derek Carter's and Mark Farina's that had already kind of set up a platform for me to exist in. Um, so I just was kind of following suit and doing what I could do. Um, but I was definitely like that second or third generation of guys coming, so it was hard to break in. You know, it's very hard. So what was the break? I never really had that aha moment. I had a few things along the way. I think for me, the biggest moment where I knew things were changing and I knew like the old guard was, that didn't matter as much anymore. As much as I love them, I think their relevancy was wearing off was 2009 when I played EDC. I played the main stage and I had had a string of hits. And when I say hits, hits in the underground, where I could play them to a club of three, 400 people and people were singing along. And I'm like, damn, this is working. Right. Didn't, no matter where I was in the world, these people knew this record. So not only am I playing it, my FM station was these thousands of DJs across the planet that were getting there and playing my music on Friday and Saturday night at their local clubs. So they're playing these mixes. I'm showing up and people are knowing them. So more promoters are like, man, the club's packed when you're here. And, you know, so at this point, I'm just rolling. I'm doing 200, 250 shows a year. I'm starting a family at this point. I mean, it's just getting chaotic. Right. It sounds like it. Yeah.
0: And so, okay, <coughs> you continue to have the same manager and the same agent?
1: Uh, yes. Well, change agents a few times along the way. Uh, okay.
0: How does that happen? You realize that person is not big enough for what you're doing or someone approaches you?
1: This person's not big enough for what I'm doing. I got to start looking elsewhere.
0: Okay. You're starting a family and you're on the road for 250 days a year. That doesn't sound like it's going to work.
1: It's a freaking miracle that it did. I can't. When I look back to those times, so some dark days there. But I was having so much fun. And my wife, Naomi, bless her soul, she stood by me this entire time. I mean, I, I... I don't know how we made it work. Looking okay. back on it, we, we were young and dumb, and we didn't know any. Forgetting better.
0: the family, just talking yeah. about Naomi. Yeah, did, does she like your
1: music? She does. She loves house music. Okay, you know, she was driving from Reading into San Francisco and going to their rave scene that they had then, and we had similar tastes in music. Oh, okay, so that to yeah. begin
0: with. And did she believe in you? She did. Or if so, she didn't, she didn't tell me. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> no, but was she your, like your greatest champion saying? She was, well, she, she was like
1: out there, do it. Do it. Okay. And she's, you know, a really hard worker and understood that, okay, this is important for you to keep doing these gigs. It is slowly getting better and better with each year. Um, but going back, 2009 is when EDC, well, I sat down with the Pasquale. Pasquale Rotella. Yep. And well, I'm a good friend. I mean, I DJed I DJ'd his wedding. I played his mom's funeral. I've known Pasquale for years. This guy's booked me so many times. I could, I've lost count. Um, and he was a champion of me and my sound. So that was, that helped. It was a I mean, game changer. But I, I think a lot of American promoters felt the pressure and they saw electronic music as a European thing, you know, house music and it was always it was such it had that kind of you know people listen to house music are the people that order the cheese platter you know it was kind <laughs> of like it was a different kind of thing what was funny because where i came from it was very blue collar it was like the working class music in chicago it was like yeah get down and dirty in a uh, you know in a ugly nightclub um so i had a very different thought process than they did anyway around 2008-2009 a lot more guys are coming over because money starts kind of pouring into the scene. These raves are getting bigger. The clubs are getting bigger. Things are changing. I'm making a good living now. Um, But I sat down with him in a room and pounded on the... the, He had booked the uh, Swedish House Mafia. Nobody really knew at the time in america and i sat down and i pounded on the table i'm like this is freaking crap man you gotta have my back these guys nobody knows these guys that's wonderful that they're huge in stockholm or that they are massive in london i don't care i'm here in freaking california man you can't do me like this i got really upset and he'll, he remembers me I, mean, I was pounding on the table he's like i've never seen you like this you're so passive i'm like well i'm not gonna take these guys scraps dude I'm playing rooms three times the size of what these guys are doing when they come here because I'm here. I'm this is this is my circuit, bro. And I think they felt a lot of pressure from the European agents and promoters and all that that well there's you know over there this was the first taste of well on social media they have these numbers and on this and that because up till this point in the underground it was hard to distinguish right. who had value and who didn't. It was mainly who just thumped their chest the loudest. Oh, that guy must be huge. You know, then YouTube right. came along and you saw pictures of these peoples and videos of their shows. Like, wow, they're huge. Anyway, but in 2009, I played that main stage. Uh, deservedly okay. so. You so know? you
0: played the main stage because you basically bang your uh, hands on the table for Pasquale? I think he was, he was going to put me there that year
1: anyway because I would played some previous years and was attracting these massive crowds. I mean, like, I was kind of like the people's choice at this point. Um, and a California favorite. So I think he was going to put me there just on the billing. I was like, I'm not going underneath these people. I'm happy for them that they're huge overseas. That's wonderful. But when they come here, this is this is my place. <laughs> they can be billed below me or beside me. But I'm not going to play under these guys. And he heard me out and he gave me a chance. In 2009 was one of those moments where I was standing at EDC in front of, you know, 50, 60, 100,000 people, whatever it was. That coliseum was full and the place was, it was a giant sing along to my stuff. And I think at that point he was like, okay, yeah, you really have done something here, you know? So, and that kind of solidified our relationship. And um, I mean, uh, he was really great and kind to me before that. But, and then a lot of people and promoters around the world were watching what EDC was doing. So the fact that I had clout with them and things were playing so well, that just helped. And then I think another important piece in the touring story, I mean, whatever, we could talk about so many different facets of this, but in 2010s, when Vegas got involved. And that was a game changer. That changed everything. I mean, that's, that's why I A little bit slower
0: through- for those people who are not deep into the scene. Yeah. So I know Vegas goes into uh, uh, dance music and there's Hakistan. There are all these different clubs. But when you're there as part of the scene, suddenly you just get a call and they say, okay, you know, we're ready to do this.
1: 2007, 2008. I'm going out there occasionally and playing for these casinos. And s- some shows are good, some shows are not so good. But it's different because everything is hip hop. It's all radio, right up to that point. And then I show up and I'm playing stuff that these clubs, people have never even heard this stuff. Like, what is this? You know, it exists in the underground. But it was working because I'd have enough fans at this point. And I'm close enough to LA. People were coming out and they'd fill the club and they drank and it was a party. Um, So Vegas got interested in the music pretty quickly in 2009 Steve Wynn and his team called me up and they said we want to build a pool and have an outdoor pool party and I'm like hallelujah let's do this and I said I got a better they want to they're like we want to book you once a month during our peak season during summer and I said I got a better idea for you from Memorial Day to Labor Day I'll play every Saturday for you guys and we'll make it a thing, and we'll brand it. And they're like, yes, this is what we want. Perfect, let's work a deal, whatever, this is happening. I mean, there's only one other pool party in town at that point. It's rehab, but it's very, uh, it's hip-hop. It's a hip-hop-driven, like, it's very urban So nobody is doing this in this country. But I had been to Ibiza several times, and I would seen how these guys were doing it. And I'm like, man, if I didn't have to fly all the way to Ibiza, because that's 24-hour travel door-to-door, I'm like, this changes my life if this works. And I remember coming home from the meeting. I flew back home. They showed me the big pit in the ground. This is where we're digging the pool, and it's going to be cool. And we want it, you know, we want it very European. We want it it cool. We want it chic. Play your cool house music, you know. Anyway, we opened up that Memorial Day. 2010 and 5,000 people are inside and there's probably another 10,000 people lined up down the block and that town had never seen anything like it still to this day hasn't. I mean, it was just like dynamite, an atom bomb went off on the, the, I mean, dude, it just changed. It was just a massive shift from, whoa, we've got hip hop to like this kid from San Francisco can show up and attract 10,000 people and we can ring a million dollars how much are we paying this guy? Okay. And everyone was flush with cash. Um, so I was there that summer and it was just, I mean, dude, grins from ear to ear, the staff, the owners, Mr. Wynn was my buddy. I mean, it just, everything was firing on all fronts. You know, four gigs into it, I'm like, okay, we need to readjust some things <laughs> too. I need to get paid some more money, you know. Uh, and at this point I have an attorney, um, Ed Shapiro, great guy's been with me almost since the beginning. Um, and he's, he's the longest member of my team. I should say 17 years I've been working with this guy. But anyway, he, uh, you know, he really helped me out in that my, you know, agent and everybody kind of rallied behind me. And I think we knew that that summer I'm like. Because if something works in Vegas, every casino is going to copy it. Right. Of course, they can't make be making tens of millions of dollars and have people not rip off the idea. Not in Vegas. So, of course, that next year, more and more stuff showed up. And then, you know, Cosmopolitan came online. Hakkasan came online. And, I mean, they just were buying talent like crazy. And what happened is there's so much competition and there's only a few artists. So the fees just went through the roof. I mean, it was just... Yeah, I could move from San Francisco down here. I was already feeling that because I was writing and producing a lot of stuff in 2009. I moved down here in 2009. I wanted to be closer to LA and I had a studio in Santa Monica and I was commuting from Orange County. I couldn't afford LA, so I was living in Orange County and commuting back and forth. Um, But I knew things were changing and there was a shift uh, musically because I was doing all these remixes and then six months later, versions of that remix with a new song were showing up. That production style was going closer and closer to the radio. So I'm like, I got to be in LA and be closer to this. Even if the DJ thing kind of craps out because Vegas wasn't locked in yet. I was like, I could produce people's records. I mean, wow, you know, a little teeny bit of a Madonna record or a Beyonce record is going to, that will take care of us. By these producers, they're, they're listening to my remixes. I know they are. They have to be. It's too close stylistically. Anyway... That all kind of happened in a very quick time that Vegas came online. I moved down here and, yeah, it changed my life. I mean, even to this day, Vegas accounts for about 40 to 50% of my revenue touring-wise. I mean, it's a, it's a large number. Okay,
0: so how often do you work in uh, Vegas?
1: Um, this year I'm doing a little over 30 shows, 35 shows, something like this. Okay, and you're working where in Vegas now? Um, I'm with the Hakkasan Group, and that's uh, Caesars Omnia um Hakusan, the club uh, uh Wet Republic is at the MGM so they have you know they manage multiple clubs there but I kind of rotate between those three venues and at this late date how's business for them it's cooled off a little bit I mean we're talking about 2010 when it was right of course. so then every club opened up and so now you've got you know 12, 15 clubs on the strip and, you know, six pool parties, eight pool parties, whatever it is. So everyone's doing it. So when I say it's cooled off, it's cooled off for them. For me,
0: it's it's as wild as it's ever been. So pay for you, because I know from talking to people in the business, pay for you has stayed the same or gone up
1: gone up I kind of hit a ceiling about three years ago but it's essentially stayed the same they got a little bit smarter used to right. be in a locked-in fee it didn't matter five old people there or five hundred thousand people were there now they've built in bonuses so they've hedged their bets a little bit um, just because the clubs kind of got smarter and started talking to one another and right, like right. hey what are we gonna do here <laughs> we can't pay for these guys you know doesn't matter if five thousand people show up we're not you know right because it just became more competitive there was more real estate you know there's more tables there's more clubs to go to and you know, that lowered the entrance fee for the the patrons and it changed it a little bit.
0: We'll pause here for a brief moment and get right back to my conversation with Cascade. You know, I'm primarily a writer and you can read my work at leftsets.com. Sign up for the newsletter or just read it on the blog if you don't want to get your inbox blown up. In addition to following my commentary on music, tech, and the world at large, as well as my personal life, you'll be the first to find out when we've published a new episode of the podcast. Go to leftsets.com and sign up for the newsletter. You need a friend in your inbox to compete with all the spam. I know you'll enjoy it. Now more with world-famous DJ Cascade, recorded live at the Tune In Studios in Venice, California. Okay, so in that 10-year period from when you start with Vegas to now, what else changes for you? Um...
1: I think the music just continued. I just continued to be an album guy. And there, were, there weren't many of those in my world. And a song guy. You know, I sticked with my original kind of 2002, 2003 idea. And everybody kind of came around to that. Like EDM was kind of centered around that. Like, oh, it has to have a vocal. This could potentially cross over to radio. That was never my thing. And I don't Really, particularly write like that. I've never had any radio success. Um, I still kind of write for a nightclub. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's a hard lane to get out of. The hard thing to change my mindset. But I'm com- I'm comfortable with that. That's fine. Um, but um, yeah. So I just continue putting out records, and my fan base grows and grows and grows. And social media, with the onset of social media, I I mean, dude, I could talk directly to the people where before I had to go to St. Louis to meet my fans and play in a club and fill a club. Now I can get on Twitter, I can get on Facebook, I can send a message directly to them. I'm coming here, and it really helped
0: me. So to what degree do you participate on social media? I am...
1: It's nauseating how much I'm on there. I apologize to anyone who follows me, but... um, I think it was so important because we have no other way, people in my, my world, there's no other way to broadcast the message. Like, hey, I'm playing a club here, I'm playing festival there, it's important for me to talk to these people. And I think it's really gratifying. I mean, when SoundCloud was a thing, it was so awesome for me to, like, whip something up, an edit, a mashup, a remix, whatever it was, a new song, put it on there, go to Twitter and, like, hey, check it out and post it up and just get that instant feedback before... I'm pressing a record that takes two and a half months to press. I ship the record out. It goes to the store, comes back. I go to that city six months later. You know, a couple people have found that record. Go there a year later, everybody's singing it. It was like this 18-month, 24-month lag of me creating this thing to when people right. were like it absorbed it. Now it's like I can put it out and
0: have this conversation immediately with people. So I loved it. And to what degree on social media is it all primarily I'm coming, this is what I'm doing, or do you also communicate with fans and talk about subjects that have nothing to do with you particularly or have to do with music or the world at large? Um, I talk about a lot of random stuff. Um, I let
1: people into my world somewhat. Uh, I'm pretty private, but I still share songs of like, I should still share thoughts of, Hey, this is how I wrote this song and this is what the catalyst was for this or, you know, this is why I'm touring. And I have a lot of discussions in and around music just about, like, whatever. This is what I'm doing on a Thursday afternoon. I think people like that, and they appreciate it.
0: And um, what platform is your platform of choice? Sadly, I'm I'm a Twitter guy. Well, I, I don't like, know why sadly.
1: Uh, well, I, because it's not as popular as it once was. And I think the younger kids have kind of lost out on Twitter. You know, they want Snapchat and whatnot. I don't... I don't want to feel like I'm producing a television show every day. I don't like pointing my phone at me, and I I don't don't appreciate that. I like Twitter because I like to write, so I can get on there and show a quick little anecdote and think that's... And how many
0: followers do you have today?
1: Uh, It's over a million, 1.3 million, 1.4 million. And what about Instagram? About the same amount, Instagram. I enjoy Instagram because it can be very curated, and I feel like it's still an art I have a photog and a, video, a videographer follow me, and we can still put stuff up that's neat. But it is more curated, my, my channel. I, I, you know, I'm,
0: I'm aware of what's happening and put images that I like up. Okay, so you've achieved certainly far beyond most people's wildest dreams. Yes. What is left in the landscape that you would like to achieve?
1: Um, I think now it's just more about legacy, You know what have I added to this scene I know what it gave me it gave me a life and um uh and I'm thankful for that so I I think you know I still feel like there's quite a bit of writing left in me and a few songs that I still want to share I still feel that uh so I still want to write and produce and continue sharing. I, I'm really interested in Sun Soaked and seeing that become a brand that can stand on its own. I mean, right now it's essentially a Cascade concert, a show that people are going to that's on the beach. Well, that's special. Um, but I'd like to see that potentially be in more places. Um, and something that I could be really heavily involved with. But, um, you know... Kind of transition and make it something more than just being about me. You know, bring other artists in, make it multiple days. Have it be in a few different locations. Well, this you know,
0: we're sitting here on Thursday, the week following Sunsoaked, in Long Beach. There were thirty-one thousand people there. Uh, to what degree with your or were you happy or unhappy with certain elements of the show? Thank you for your write-up, by the way. That was very uh, kind. Listen, of it you. was great, and people should only go. The amazing thing here, and I just know. Uh, because his uh, promoter, Eric Kurtz, took me 2010 or whatever to Hard Halloween, okay. and it really opened my eyes. And the funniest thing was people, very good friends of mine said, you're not going to believe we got to tell you a story. We went to the USC football game, and walking by all these people, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I was there, and their eyes bugged out. So, you know, that's how I really originally got into the scene. I've been to Ibiza a couple of times, et cetera, And what blows my mind is that people have no idea what's going on here being at Sun sunsoaked the amazing thing was and it's not amazing to you but for those of us everyone's singing along to songs that are not mainstream songs mainstream meaning you know the spotify top 50 or written about in the media whatever this is obviously that important to them and the other thing of course is the social atmosphere you go to a regular show And you bump into something. It happens all the time, okay? Mm -hmm. You're just walking along. Hey, man, what are you doing? Hey, hey, hey. no, 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 no. Sunset, oh, cool, no problem. It's very, yeah. You know, so it's a great atmosphere. Now, the other thing I was told that there were no trips to the hospital, okay? And this is very different from many other electronic music festivals. Why do you think that is? I think it's
1: partly me as a person and the people that I've attracted um, through years of touring. You know, my music. I think I'm emitting a message that that you know isn't like that helps that right that environment. So it's about you. It's you're setting a tone. I, I, I think. Listen, dance music is like that, generally speaking, right? But then I think I'm one of those guys that's in front of that kind of leading that charge. I like to think of myself as that anyway. um, You know, I've been very, very fortunate with my live shows. I've done, I mean, to my knowledge, that's the largest like single act ticket sales of anyone in my world. Certainly in North America, I don't know about Europe and I can't speak for some of these other places, but I mean, 31,000 people, this is, this is insane. And I think the thing that is so difficult for people in the music industry to understand, and, and I'm managed now by Rock Nation and Jay Brown, they're just so fascinated because it is it's how do these people know these songs how you, you got 31,000 people singing along to a song that I released 8 years ago I mean I could turn the record off and they'll sing the chorus with the hands in the air it boggles my mind it blows my mind but that's the age of the internet people are finding this stuff I mean you look at my spins on Spotify they're they're nothing special you know I'm like four and a half, five million streams a month this is you know I'm not even in the top 500 I don't think you know But yet I can go and sell these many tickets. Many pop acts have a very difficult time doing something like this. And that's really – listen, that's how I discovered your emails because it was – I'm outside of this music industry. I kind of sit on the outside. I'm looking in. But yet I've been able to find and carve my own niche. And I think that's what's been so fascinating uh, to the people around me. And even myself, I'm still kind of like – shocked and scratched my head. Okay,
0: you know, if you go back to the, you know the classic rockers, the Stones, the Beatles, they said, hey, we'll do this for 10 years, we'll go back to hometown, we'll go back to the factory. Do you anticipate, if you're 47 now, do you anticipate 20, 25 years from now you'll still be in Vegas or somewhere spinning records? No. No? Why not? I don't think so. This is a young
1: person's game. It really is. It's, a, it's very... Dance music is young... Uh, full of life and I, I think it would be difficult to be like a really old guy up there trying to lead that charge um, I think listen I'm always going to be writing and producing records on some level because that, that satisfies something inside of me right I love writing a song I love working on music I love remixing stuff um, and listen I, I'm sure I'll have the occasional tour like dust it off the turntable let me get out <laughs> there and do something but uh, to the degree that I'm touring now and stuff, no. I mean, I've slowly been kind of winding it down for the last, I don't know, three, four years. I've, you know, at that peak when I was doing 200-plus shows a year to now, you know, I do 100 shows this year, 110 shows or something. It's half of what it was. Um, one, because I'd make so much more money per show. So of I don't course, have to hustle is hard. Um, but I think it'll continue to kind of go that way.
0: Um, okay, but 100 is, you know, you have many... Legendary acts who do 60 shows every other year. So 100 shows is still a lot of shows. Yes, it is. Okay. Not in my world, but yes, it is. Of course, of course, you're a DJ. But anybody, as they become more successful, because we know, I remember, I think I was talking to Metallica, they went went on the road one year and they all came back and got a divorce. You know, you're on, you're working so hard on what you do, your life completely changes. Right. So when you get to the point you want, you get to a certain point, you want a life-work balance, but that does not necessarily mean you stop working. Right. I agree with that. Okay. Couple, I mean, you, you said 20 years from now. That. that
1: just seems like a really long time. Okay.
0: Right? Well, I, I, I think what you're saying is what the classic rock acts, they couldn't even imagine, especially, you know. Okay. But a couple further questions. Yeah. What's it like to be on stage when, and don't forget... I mean, you know, but people are singing. Dance music, it's a very active audience. They're not sitting passively. You don't have to wait for the song to end oh, man. to get applause. What's it like being on stage in front of that many people, getting that reaction, having them in the palm of your hand?
1: It's insane. I mean, it's impossible for me to describe. It's... The energy flowing through me is crazy. It's very difficult for me to sleep after a a show or to calm down. It takes a while. I mean, dude, I've, I'm, it's electric.
0: It's It's funny you say that because people, you know, people always say their criticisms of musicians, you know, going to a minor one would be, well, they date models. Well, models have the same lifestyle. You know, traveling around the world, staying up all night, whatever. The next thing is, well, why do they all do drugs? I know you don't do drugs, but I always say it's very hard. You know, you're loved by 20,000 people in an arena. You get back into the bus with the same guys that you know since high school. You can't come down for hours. Yep. They use the drugs. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but the average person has no idea what this like. You know, it's like if I write and I get most inspired late at night— you know, I can't write and go to bed. You're just all fired up.
1: Yep. You gotta get the idea. You gotta I, and I mean it's very uh physical as well. You see me on stage, I'm jumping around, I'm running to this side, running to that side. It's just and I have to do that because so much is flowing through me. I feel like I could lift up a car and throw it into the <laughs> audience at a certain point, you know. I mean it's it's crazy. That's a,
0: that's a great analogy. Just you know, another thing that people have criticism of electronic music they say that basically it's all on hard drive and the guy's just pressing play. When you are on stage, how much are you creating on stage?
1: Great question. I'll, I'm going to make this as short an answer as I could possibly make. I, there's, we're in an interesting spot with electronic music. For a very long time, a lot of it was be, being created. And what I mean by that is I show up and I've got two or 300 records right. behind me I know the first record I'm going to play, sure, but I have no idea what's going to happen then. It's this interesting relationship that you have with the audience, and this is certainly true in the nightclubs, where you're kind of like weaving this tapestry, this audio tapestry, right, with them, and you're going in and out, and there is a skill of lining this up and blending these and picking the next song, and it's very, it's very organic thing, and it is a talent, and whatever, I'll sit here and argue, even if I'm not in this business, I'm telling you, There are guys that do it really, really well that have learned and honed that for a very long time. As it became digitized and it changed things a little bit, it was a lot easier to have less talent and be able to pull it off because then it became more about the song. Okay, write a good song, get up in front of the audience and play it. That's good enough. And you are just pressing play. I'm trying to blend those two worlds of the old and the new. I mean, I still show up on stage and I have a playlist with a hundred songs on it. And I think I know what I'm going to play. And to my touring parties' dismay and, and, I mean, they hate me for this, that I still kind of go off on these tangents. They want me to provide them a set list. So all the pyrotechnics and everything can be all in sync and it can be this beautiful show. And I refuse to do this because I'm like, look, man, even if I give you a set list... I'm not going to stick to it. <laughs> <laughs> then it would be no fun. Then For me, well, it, and I came up in a time when that didn't exist. I mean, I toured for 10 years by myself. Right. Like, I did whatever the hell I wanted to do. <laughs> you know, Like, I didn't have to answer anyone. So they hate me, you know, 24 hours at the gig. They're like, what are you starting with? You know, what are you going to do? And I'm like, okay, I think I might start here, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to end here, in between, you know. But the guy, but what we've, discovered is the guys that do the best with me they just go and play every show with me so as I incorporate new mixes and finish new songs and I can incorporate that in my show and they're heard and they're familiar with it and so they become as seasoned as I am and that's the best way to do it instead of these guys just showing up at the big shows they're there at the big shows, the small shows I'm playing 500 people, they're there, they're listening to it they're working the video, the lights So.
0: and what about the health of the scene at this point?
1: Uh, I think it's great uh, it's kind of Broken into two things, so there's kind of like a pop lane where you got David Guetta's and Calvin Harris's that have taken dance music and opened it up to a wider audience, which is awesome. Um, And that angered some of the people when we were all in one scene, when we're all just one group of guys. But now it's kind of fractured, and the underground has become like all. Ships rise with the tide, right? So even the underground is much bigger and, and, and more profitable and, and healthier because this pop stuff is there. But I think it took a moment for people to realize, like, oh, that's them over there. That's the pop stuff, and this is us. We're the underground. So they're kind of separated now. Before there was that weird period of time where we are all together and, well, I don't like them, and that guy doesn't like this. But now they've kind of they've gone their separate ways, and there's a d- divide between them. Um, which is weird because I kind of coexist in both worlds. <laughs> I mean, I'm over here straddling the fence. What um,
0: right. well, would you like to have a radio hit?
1: Sure. Okay. Yes.
0: So whatever you sit at home saying, you know, whatever your process is, whether it be premeditated or after the fact, well, this might this might work. Are you still stri- Are you striving to reach that pinnacle?
1: Uh yes, for a few reasons. One now. Listen, I've done a lot and I've written a lot of music over 20 years. So now in the last like three, four years as I got signed to major labels and went out of the indie scene, I mean, before I used to turn in an album and it was, here's the track order. I mean, it wasn't, they didn't give me input. I was like, here it is. Then I signed with Warner and I had an A&R signed to me and he's like, listen to the songs and giving me feedback and hanging out in the studio. And I kind of liked it. I was like, this is cool. Why not? five years ago I would have told them to f off and get out of the room but now I'm like cool man you got some ideas what's up you know I've been around I've written a song I don't need it's not about ego for me I'm kind of like just make something cool and have a good time so I kind of had to check myself and and rearrange how I thought about the process and not only that now it's like I feel like I'm such a part of what the sound of what modern dance music is I feel like songwriters come in and pitch me on songs I'm like wow did you did you know this song by me? Because this is very similar to something I wrote five years ago or seven years ago or ten years ago. Oh, my gosh, I love that song. Yeah, I can see the influence there. So to me, it's cool when other songwriters come and want to work with me where before I was close to that idea. Now I'm like, oh, let's collaborate. Two minds, three minds are better than one. I've, I've kind of learned to enjoy that process. Now the part about do I want a radio hit, it's more about me – because it, in this independent world where we could try and be like, this person's worth this much or this guy's worth that much goes back to that conversation I had you know, a long time ago with Pasquale. I deserve respect right. here. you know. Um, there's still a lot of guys that, oh, well we're going to bill him here, or bill him there. Okay, then just don't include me on your festival. I'm fine. I don't need your right $250,000 although that's a lot of money right, of I'd be, course of I'd course. be playing for cheeseburgers right you right know? but to me it was like I don't, I don't need to be a part of that 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 guy that you're putting on ahead of me or claiming that he has more value I don't I don't subscribe to that cool you know and so for me the touring numbers became a really big deal uh, and I understood when, you know, the Swedes and all these guys came around, they're like, I sold out Madison Square Garden. I understood why they did that, because they were trying to, you know, put their value up to these promoters and show them things. And so for me, when I come back, I mean, dude, promoters around the world right now in the country are emailing me. They can't, it can't be 31,000 people. You mean 13,000 people. Really? Oh. I had a promoter. I'm not going to say who. Right. He's, when I told him 31,000, he's like, you mean 3,000? I'm like, no, this is 31,000 paid people. Guess what? With another couple thousand jumping the fence and probably a couple more thousand on my guest list of my right, right. I mean, this is the 35,000-person party we're having here. This is a show that we're, we're creating waves. And those, those moments, because to me, whether it's 500 people or 50,000, it's more about success. And not having to answer to the promoter and prove my value to them. So for me, the radio hit is like, it's here nor there, but I can't stand answering to these guys that are like, oh, well, we're going to put this kid who's 18 on in front of you. And I'm like, no, you're not. No, you're not. Cool. I don't have to play your party, dude. I'm busy that day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, certainly in a cutthroat business like this. But traditionally, traditionally is a funny term to use for over the last 20 years, but Dance music has waxed and waned in popularity outside of its core audience. Yes. Do you think that it will continue to grow or go back to base, or do you have a viewpoint on that? It's going back to base now. We're in the
1: middle of a shift. It's going back to base, which is cool. It's fine. I think there's a handful of guys that it doesn't matter, they're just part of the pop. Cultural landscape, right? Um, so they've kind of risen above that here in this country. I'm very fortunate to be part of that small club of guys um, and girls. I think there's a girl in there somewhere, maybe. I hope so. I'm not uh, touching that. No, right? Um, but I think we'll, we'll make it through, and I think the underground is strong as it's ever been. But it's it's weaning because every listen, everything's hip hop right now, and even a lot of successful dance songs have to have. Okay, we got to have a verse from easy or this or whatever and it's becoming more you know lab created music right, right. everyone's got to have an opinion and make this and make that and make this and me i'm kind of like comfortable just sitting back doing what i've always done sure the pop it yeah cool i'd take one of those cool am i listen to am i open to listening to somebody else's ideas and what i should be doing yeah sure is most of it a waste of time yes like I'm like – because I'm perfectly comfortable with what I'm doing. But if somebody's got a great idea and there's a brilliant songwriter out there, I love good music and, and, and I'll spend a day in the
0: studio with them and, you know, maybe some magic comes out of that. Well, this is a whole other podcast getting into the creation and the scene. But you've been listening to the Cascade on the Bob Lefsetz podcast. This has just been fascinating and edifying – Just to hear, I mean, people have no idea. All they see is like the Forbes list of successful DJs. They have no idea of the hard work that's put in, and especially in your case that you were attracted to the scene when there was barely any scene to begin with when you were growing up in Chicago. And to use the old cliche that started music businesses in every walk of life now, you paid a lot of dues. So you're at the pinnacle. You have a smile on your face. It's been so great to have you here. Thank you so much. Thanks. Appreciate it. Till next time, it's Bob Sets. Tune in next week for another podcast. That wraps up this week's episode of the Bob Sets podcast, recorded live at the Tune In Studios in Venice, California. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Cascade as much as I did. What did you think of the interview? You can email me at bob Till next time, I'm Bob Sets.